just want to thank those who um, were so kind and energetic as to um, decorate the church so festively. And uh, I know it took a lot of volunteers to do that. And I just want to, on behalf of others, express thanks to those of you that were involved in that project. <clears throat> Christmas is coming. I, uh, I wouldn't be surprised that there are some uh, maybe six, seven, eight-year-olds, maybe some that are in this room that are, that are saying, it seems like Christmas is never going to come. I just can't wait. seems like it takes forever. Remember, I remember that when I was that age. Well, in response, I uh, turn on my wise grandfatherly voice, and I say, uh, I promise you, in the fullness of time, Christmas will come. Just be patient. And so I hope that helps, if any of you are thinking that way. You know, sometimes it does seem as if an anticipated event is just never going to come. I mean, that the promise will never be fulfilled. Think with me about Abraham and Sarah. Remember them? God promised them a son. And it seemed unlikely. He was 75 and she was 10 years younger. But they believed God. But time went on and it didn't happen. Seemed as if it would never happen. They waited 25 years. But then, when the fullness of time came, God kept his promise, and Isaac was born. I think of the family of Israel, this man named Jacob. He and his 12 sons and their families went into Egypt to escape famine. Eventually, they became slaves, and they endured great hardship. But... They knew that they were destined, they knew there was a promise, that they were destined to become a great nation. This meant they needed a deliverer. But it seemed he'd never come. After 430 years in Egypt, when the fullness of time came, God sent Moses, who arrived on the scene as God's man, to lead them out of servitude. Now, the family of Jacob has become a great nation, the nation of Israel. And they nursed a promise from God. As Pastor Lucas showed us last Sunday, right from the time of Adam and Eve, God made a promise that the seed of the woman, the dragon slayer, the uh, great Messiah, anointed one, the deliverer of the nation, would one day come. But decades became centuries Still, no fulfillment of the oft-repeated promise seemed as if he'd never come. Then suddenly, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. That's from Galatians chapter 4. God fulfilled his promise. The seed of the woman the dragon slayer, the defeater of Satan, had arrived. It was Jesus in his first advent. But you know, the promised Messiah, Jesus, whose coming we celebrate at this season of the year, did not take the expected kingly position. He died 
But he rose again, and he ascended to heaven. And by doing all of this, he opened the way uh, for salvation to be experienced by people of all nations, just not just Israel. He returned to the Father with the promise, I will come again. So for 20 centuries, believers have lived with the blessed hope of the appearing in glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's out of Titus chapter 2. But still he has not come. Um, Seems like it's taking forever. But one day, when the fullness of time has come, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus... We shall ever be with the Lord. That's from 1 Thessalonians 4. It's his second advent. Yes, Jesus will come again. See, the God who promised a son to Abraham and Sarah, the God who promised deliverance to enslaved Israel, the God who promised that, um, excuse me, I lost my spot here, the God who promised Messiah, Uh, to the Old Testament Israel, and the God who, when the fullness of time arrived, kept those promises. He is the God who will, in the fullness of time, keep another promise. He will come again. The promise of a Savior, the seed of the woman, was first made back there in the garden. The promise gained significant traction when God spoke to a man named Abram, later to become known as Abraham, The words God spoke to Abram will be the focus of our attention this morning there in the uh, 12th chapter of Genesis. uh, And I want us to read that passage, but I want us to start back in the end of the 11th chapter so that we uh, get the whole picture in its context. So we will read from Genesis 11, verse 27, on through the fourth chapter, uh, the fourth verse of the next chapter. And while you're turning to that, and it will be on the screen... uh, I want to just indicate uh, this is uh, the second in a four-part series that uh, we're calling Christmas in the Beginning and drawing uh, these messages from Genesis, the first book of the Bible, to demonstrate that God has eternal purpose. And today we're looking at at God, the original promise keeper. Pastor Lucas uh, uh, last week gave us a big overview, and we're continuing to be kind of uh, it's a big overview uh, that we're looking at today. Maybe not quite as uh, broad a view as uh, was last week, but uh, somewhat. Uh, because we want, us, we want to demonstrate that the, there's, there's unity between the Old and the New Testaments. And the Christmas story begins right, right there in the book of Genesis. Somebody said uh, in re- relationship between the Old and New Testaments... Uh, someone has said that the new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. And that's been helpful to me in seeing the relationship between these, uh, these two the testaments. Okay, so let's read uh, from Genesis chapter 11, beginning at verse 27, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Now, these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. And Haran died 
in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor, these two brothers, both took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. And Sarai was barren. She had no child. Now, Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. The big idea here this morning is that an all-important and essential step in the ultimate fulfillment of this Abrahamic covenant. See, these verses 2 and 3 particularly are what is commonly known as the Abrahamic covenant, an agreement that God uh, made with Abraham. This, for the, um, an important essential step in the fulfillment of this covenant was the first advent of Jesus Christ. So I want us to, to look a little at, uh, first, uh, at this passage. We'll notice that the first verse is simply a command. It's kind of a twofold command, but then verses 2 and 3 are really where the promises of blessing show up. And you'll see that if you're looking at, at the outline on, in the bulletin. And I want just to say this much about the first verse, the command. Uh, God says, there is a land to which I will lead you. But you must have enough faith in me to go away from all that's familiar, away from your country, your, your relations, your father's house, and only if you depart will you arrive. I mean, that makes sense, right? In order to get there, he had to leave here. And so, but this is the first glimpse that we get of Abraham being a man of faith because he has enough faith to believe that God is going to take him to a land. And he has enough faith to depart from everything that's familiar, to depart from the, from the known, to go to the unknown. And this is, like I say, the first sign that here's, here's a man of faith. Now, let me just pause for a moment here, because I think there's something for us to understand, that sometimes we may be called to go from the known to the unknown, from the familiar to the unfamiliar, in order to experience God's best in our lives. I mean, it happens all the time when, you know, a young person gets through high school and the decision is made, well, where do I go from here? And it may be education, it may be military, it may be a job, but it may be that God's will is revealed that you need to leave the familiar 
to go to the unfamiliar, and that is where you will experience God's blessing. Um, Just Friday, in our Bible study down at Maple Ridge, we were uh, talking, and we came across the passage in Mark 16 where Peter rebuked Jesus. Jesus had told that he was going to go to Jerusalem and die and rise again, and Peter said, oh, no, Lord, not so. And the Lord took him aside. I mean, it says Peter took Jesus aside. And in that being stepped aside, the Lord said to, to Peter, you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. And I thought that was a very key statement. And it's an important thing for us that we should not be guilty as Peter was. We need to put our minds on God's interests and not on our own. And in this world, uh, pursuing God's interests will constantly put us in opposition to the standards of our society. And we continually are called upon to do this, and it puts us at opposition with much that's going on in our society. But we need to be ready in obedience to the Lord to step away from from what that is familiar and that which is so common and in order to follow God and his purpose in our lives. Well, I just wanted to, I wanted to make that point. Well, we see that being lived out in Abram's experience. This is the first glimpse that we get of Abraham. Let's go to the promises that we find here. And in this, in this passage um, that uh, is at the heart of this covenant that God made with Abraham, are, I've put the blessings in, in terms of four categories. There is the blessing to Abraham, where God says, I will bless you. There's the promise through Abraham, because in the passage, God says, you shall be a blessing. There's the promise to Abraham's blessers. I don't know if blesser is a word in the dictionary, but uh, it it should be. Uh, So those that bless Abraham will be blessed, and those who curse him will be cursed is there as well. So there's the promise to Abraham's blessers. And finally, there's the promise to all nations, because God says, In you, Abraham, in all the families of the earth will be blessed. So there's the fourfold promise of blessing that comes out of this passage. Uh, it's repeated uh, numerous times. The, these promises in one aspect or another are repeated time after time. In chapter 15 and in um, verse 4, we see this. Uh, God says, God speaks directly to Abraham. He says, one who shall come forth from your own body shall be your heir. Now, that's a, that's a refinement of the earlier promise. In order for Abraham to be one who would, uh, through whom blessings would flow, there needs to be some offspring. And he has the promise of a son who will come from his own body. And he says, he, God took Abram outside and said, now look toward heaven and count the scar, stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he, the Lord, reckoned it to him as righteousness. So Abram not only is promised a son, he has promised offspring that will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And he is also promised that because of his faith, he is counted as righteous. I want to go over to Galatians chapter 3. And of course, in the 
third chapter of Galatians, we have uh, repetition of, of some of these promises, and I want to look briefly at uh, verses uh, 6 and 7 of Galatians 3. And here we have um, Paul writing and saying, Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was, oh, it was uh, reckoned to him as righteousness. That's right out of the uh, passages in Genesis 15. And he says, Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith that are the sons of Abraham. And we'll come back to Galatians 3 a little bit more and and round this out a little bit. But if we are sharers of the kind of faith that Abraham had that's been filled out in the Messiah and all that Jesus has done, then we are sons of Abraham. So the the promises to, to Abraham are that he will, he's counted as righteous. What a great promise for God to say, Abraham, Abram, you are righteous. And to the promise of a son that was fulfilled eventually in Isaac, the promise that he would um, be the possessor of a land, and we didn't go into that, but that further in, in I think it's verse 7 in chapter 12, there's a reference to the fact that he will have a, he will have a great land. And finally, there's the promise that uh, he will have offspring that cannot be counted. The, the genetic or the ethnic offspring, the Israelites, uncounted, but also the spiritual offering of those who son, are sons of Abraham by faith. And so Abraham's promise is that he's going to have offspring more numerous than the stars in the sky. What a promise. Those are the promises to Abraham. Let's think about the promise through Abraham. And it's, uh, by the way, these promises, this Abrahamic covenant is repeated by the voice of God eight more times to Abraham in these pages of Genesis. And then two more times, the voice of God speaks directly to Isaac. And three more times, he speaks directly to Jacob, the son of Isaac. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, eight and two is ten and three is thirteen times do we have God definitely speaking with his own voice to these men to reaffirm that he is the promise-keeping God. He's the one who says, I will do what I have promised. In chapter 26 of Genesis, this is where, um, this is one of the passages where God speaks to Isaac. And we have it in, uh, here in verse 3. I see that uh, uh, the Lord says, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. And I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, and I will give your descendants all these lands. Here is God with his own voice speaking to Isaac and reaffirming the promises that have been made to Abram. You see, God is very interested in these people understanding that he is the God who keeps his promise. God, one of, the, one of the things that we talked in the ABF this morning about, one of the characteristics of God, God is the definition of love, but God is also the definition of truth. He is the very embodiment of truth. And if we are to be godly people, then we should be people of integrity. It's part of godliness. You know, in the margin of my Bible, and 
at uh, Proverbs 20, verse 7, I have just penciled in one little word, three-letter word, dad. Now, my dad was not a perfect man, but he was a man of integrity. And in uh, Proverbs 20, verse 7 says, A righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. And I am blessed to have had a dad who was a man of integrity and set that pattern of integrity for me and for the rest of our family. Integrity is, is a frontline quality for everyone who wants to live a godly life. In 1985, Billy Graham, who at that time was pretty much at the, at the height of his effectiveness in his long-term ministry, it was then that he said this. Uh, this was his uh, personally suggested epitaph. What he wanted chiseled in on his t- tombstone was these words, a sinner saved by grace, a man who, like the psalmist, walked in integrity. Here's Billy Graham, and we think of all the greatness of this man, but he said, I'd like people to remember that I had integrity. He called it a frontline virtue. God, the God of truth, looks for truthfulness, integrity to be reflected in our lives in all of our dealings. Now, back to these promises that are the promises to those who would bless Abraham. Uh, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And to illustrate that, I want to go to a pretty what I think is a fairly familiar uh, passage also uh, in Genesis, starting in verse, chapter 37, we see the story of Joseph. And Joseph was used by God to be, and I think we could rightly say, the savior, not only of his own family, but of Egypt from the famine that was going to come. God revealed to Joseph, the interpretation of dreams, and through that, they were rescued from the famine, the serious famine that was to come in the land. Uh, and, you know, Jacob, in, the, in that whole story, Jacob and, and Joseph's 11 brothers and their households all come to Egypt, and in Egypt, they are given a good land. The land of Goshen was, was a good and plentiful land. They're kind of in the delta of the Nile River. And the Egyptians were blessed as they blessed the Israelites in this way. But the day came when another pharaoh came along who did not know Joseph. And the, this great people that had continued to multiply now become slaves in Egypt. And now they are, could we say, cursed by the Egyptians. And the day comes that through Moses' leadership, the people go out and the whole Egyptian army is swallowed up by the Red Sea. And we see the that those who curse Israel also experience cursing. So the fulfillment of that problem, that promise, is is shown in that way. And we could use give other examples of that, but I just give that as a as a, an answer to this uh, promise that Abraham's blessers will be blessed and his cursers will be cursed. Now we come to the promise of blessing to all nation, and and this is. Um, of a special interest to us because this includes us. This is where when God has said, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, this is where we come in. I like this. Uh, in Galatians chapter 3, I told you we're going to go back there again, and let's turn once again 
to Galatians chapter 3 and see a little bit more of this. And by the way, if you want a full picture, this is uh, thrown in extra. Um, go to Romans chapter 4 and read the whole, not now, but uh, read the whole chapter, fourth chapter of Romans and you see it filled out in great detail, this whole idea of Abraham being the father of the faithful. Okay? Now, back to Galatians 3 where we have some of that. Look with me at verse 8. We left off at verse 7 earlier. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham and the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Look with me. Jump over to verse 16. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, to Christ. And that's a quotation from Genesis chapter 22, where it says, in your seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. And Paul uses this to indicate that the seed is Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ, coming as he came in his first advent. So, come down to the end of this chapter, verse 26, I read this. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ... Then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. What does it mean to belong to Christ, to be Abraham's offspring? You know, one of the, one of the fears, one of the concerns that I've had over the years in preaching the gospel is that people would hear it but not really get it that there would be those people who would listen to the word of God over and over again, and and they'd sort of give assent to it, but they wouldn't really get it. And I, you know, to to illustrate this, I want to give you a little personal experience. Years ago, my family and I, we were, we did a lot of camping. And we had this little camp stove, little two-burner Coleman stove. And here there were uh, Phyllis and me and our seven kids and we'd come into a campground and we got this little two burner stove and Phyllis is cooking our meal on this thing and it was one of those where you pumped up the tank and, and all of that well we'd had that stove for over 20 years and it had a funny characteristic when you first and it was kind of bothersome when you first light it it would have this big plume of yellow yellow flame and then it would settle down and, and give you the nice blue flame that you're looking for And I thought, it seemed to be getting worse, so I thought I needed to replace some parts in that stove. So I found a Coleman repair shop. And I asked for the parts. And the proprietor said, "Uh, yeah, we have them. Are you sure you need them? What's the stove doing? And I told him, as I just described to you, and he said directly, the stove's not the problem, you're the problem. (laughs) I've never seen this guy before. So I was a little peeved, and I replied, Oh, you think so, huh? Yeah, he said. When you light the stove, do you just open that valve a little bit till you hear that hissing sound, and then you light the match? And I said, Yeah, that's what I do. That's your problem. You're supposed to turn the valve wide open as fast as you can, and that problem will be solved. Well, 
I said, he said, he said, this will allow you to burn vapor rather than liquid. Well, I said, nobody ever told me that. Well, he said, there's a decal right there on the stove, and he showed me a new stove. There's a decal, plain as day. This is how you light the thing. Well, I said, mine's an old stove. It doesn't have any decal on it. Oh, Coleman never made a stove that doesn't have a decal on it, he replied. Well, I said, they must have missed mine. So I left. Didn't buy any parts from him because he said I didn't need them. I went home right away. I got the stove out. I pumped it up and lit the flame the way he told me. And it worked just like a charm. This is great. And then I looked. You guess it. There was the decal. I've been lighting up that stove for 20 years, and I never saw the decal. It was there right in plain sight. Well, it got me to thinking. And here's the application. Why do I tell that story? I think there are some people that sit in churches years after years. They listen to sermons. They listen to the Bible. They hear the gospel years after years, and they just say, yeah, I believe that stuff. Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. You know, it takes more than just saying, yeah, I believe Jesus came. He's the Son of God, and he died on the cross, and he rose again. He died for sin. You know how Paul introduces the third chapter of Galatians? He says in chapter 2 and verse 20, notice the intensity of this. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. There's intensity there. That is more than just saying, yeah, I guess that stuff is true. The belief that saves is the belief that gives ourselves over to this truth and makes Jesus the Lord of our lives. And I wonder, you know, it could be there are people sitting here, you've sat in churches for a long time, or maybe short time. But, you know, you've got to be serious enough to enter into this truth at the level the Apostle Paul is talking about. It takes a genuine trust in Jesus Christ that he is my personal savior and I want to live for him. Okay? I just I urge you to take seriously this issue. You know Paul has said here that uh, people every uh, there will be neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free, male or female all are one in Christ and that's and so what I've just said about the intensity, the intentionality, and the seriousness of our commitment to Christ is what it takes to be called to be one who says, who, of whom it said, I belong to Christ, and I am Abraham's offspring. In Revelation chapter 5, we started in Genesis, we'll end in Revelation. I told you this would kind of be the big overview. In Genesis, In Revelation 5, John, the author, has the opportunity of getting a glimpse of heaven. And he sees a throne, and he sees creatures around that throne, and he sees a lamb. And they sang, these creatures around the throne sang about the lamb. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain. And you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. And they will reign upon the earth. 
This is the, this is the promise that, you know, that's us. That's the people that have been won to Christ through the ministry of the Johnsons in the Philippines. That's those who have come to Christ in Indonesia and in Japan and in Turkey and in Germany and, and out in Republic Washington and, and here with the Pregnancy Care Clinic and, and within the framework of our, of our Alana program and our MARPS ministry. That, these are the people who are hearing the gospel and responding to it. Evangelism. And evangelism needs to be at the very core, at the very heart of all that we do the hope and prayer, a sense of urgency that we might be used by God to bring others to faith in Christ. You see, Christmas is coming. And Christmas is a reminder of God as the original promise keeper in sending Jesus, the dragon slayer, the seed of Abraham, as we'll see next week, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Much of this Abrahamic covenant has been fulfilled, but not all of it. The story is not yet complete. The God-man Jesus came to earth in humble surroundings. It was his first advent. And in 33 years, he did all that was intended, but then he went away. But he went away with the promise that he would return and he will return. When he does return, he will fulfill, he will keep the promises that God has made that are yet unfulfilled. I mean, in Isaiah chapter 2, I think it is, there's a promise that one day men will beat their swords in, the, into plowshares. In other words, the, the instruments of warfare will be converted to instruments of agriculture from war to peace. You know, doesn't that promise sound pretty good in these days when San Bernardino has been added to that infamous list of places where horrible violence has broken out? This, this world that's so torn by strife and warfare that the day's going to come when that'll cease. There's another promise. It's, it's in Isaiah 11 and it says that there's a promise of a child playing by the hole of the cobra. Sounds like the dragon slayer's been there, right? Those are promises. Those are among the promises that are yet to be fulfilled. You see, uh, Jesus is coming again, and our covenant-keeping God will keep his word. But it seems like he's taking so long. You know... In the 70s, I was serving a church in Iowa, and we had vacation Bible school one year, and then the VBS project was uh, to make plaques, and we did, uh, we were going to put on glass. We took a piece of glass, rectangular piece of glass, painted the back side of it, and then in reverse, we scratched out a motto. And then we took some uh, aluminum foil, and we crumpled it all up and then spread it out so we get that crinkly look behind, the, behind the, the letters, and we turned it over and taped the whole thing together, and we had a nice motto. And I, had, and I did the project right along with the kids, and, my, and we didn't tell the kids what motto. We might have given them some guidance, but my motto was just two words, and it was this. Today, with a question mark, perhaps. It was a reminder to me that today may be the day of Jesus' return. And that motto hung on my wall for years, 
I think it either got lost or broken in the move to Whidbey Island because I don't have it anymore. But that was a constant reminder to me that Jesus is coming again. We know not when, but it could be today. It could be at any time. And I think we need to live, I shouldn't say I think, I know that we need to live in this sense of urgency that realizes that our time may be limited to witness to those people that are on our future Christian list. You know, there's a sense of urgency about our lives that should be displayed because we know that Jesus is coming again. In the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, Jesus speaks, and these are his words. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The final words of the Bible. Lord God, we come to you today. We thank you that you are a God who keeps promises. And you've demonstrated your promise-keeping, not only ability, but the reality. And we've seen promises that you have kept, and we've seen the record of it today. And so we, on the basis of your past performance, and on the basis of the fact that you are the very embodiment of truth, we believe that Jesus is coming again. I pray that you will somehow put into our hearts and minds and lives, those of us who make rightfully the claim that we are offspring of Abraham, people of faith, that we might live in such a way as to honor you and to work and pray so that people of every tongue and tribe and nation increasingly will be brought to faith in Christ because we have lived and you have used our lives for those purposes. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus came in his first advent. Thank you, Lord, that he has promised to come again and will keep that promise. We rejoice to know that. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. We're going to come to the Lord's table, and so I'm going to ask those that have agreed to help in uh, serving Uh, to come at this time, and we'll proceed with our communion service.